Hello and welcome to the STEM Equity Network podcast series. My name is Catherine Friend and we are interviewing Associate Professor and Head of Discipline Scott Byrne. Scott works for University of Sydney, co-leads the Auto-Inflammatory Diseases Group at Westmead Institute for Medical Research, where he's also the co-director of the Centre of Immunology and Allergy Research. As an immunologist, Scott's research focuses on understanding how targeting the immune system can help us fight cancer and autoimmune diseases like MS, psoriasis and Crohn's disease. After doing his PhD, Scott successfully applied for an NHMRC CJ Martin Fellowship to conduct his postdoc training at the MD Anderson Centre in Houston, Texas. On his return to Australia, Scott established his own research group at the University of Sydney as a Cancer Institute New South Wales Research Fellow. Ten years ago, he took up an academic position at University of Sydney where he has grown his teaching and research program. During that time, Scott's been the recipient of a number of awards, including a New South Wales Tall Poppy Science Award and the European Society for Photobiology Young Investigator Award. The Asia and Oceania Society for Photobiology Award for Young Scientists and the Vice-Chancellor's Award for Outstanding Research and Teaching. Last year, Scott accepted the Finson Lecturer Award from the International Union of Photobiology and was the first Australian to be awarded this international honour and as a result delivered a plenary at the World Congress in Barcelona. This year, Scott was recognised by Expertscape as a world expert in sunlight, placing him in the top 0.024% of world experts in his field. He is president of the Molecular and Experimental Pathology Society of Australia and a fellow of the, of the Faculty of Science by Research, the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia. Scott has a proud history of attracting and training the next generation of high-performing scientists. And he's previously supervised five higher degree research and 15 honours students. He currently leads a creative young team of two postdoc researchers, three PhD students and two honours students. All of his former students have secured positions in academia and industry. Scott, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Hi, Catherine. Nice to be with you. <laughs> so, Scott, can you kind of elaborate on your career? What were some of the highlights for you in particular, personally? Yeah, I, I suppose I've taken a, a pretty traditional academic path one that started sort of as an undergrad and then followed through honours, PhD and postdoc to be where I am now. I wasn't sure, you know, in high school whether I wanted to be doing medical science. I'm really glad that I am doing medical science now. But actually at the time, I had a really great year 12 physics teacher who inspired me to sort of want to go on to do astronomy. And so in first year, at uni, I actually was doing physics and was really on the path to becoming an astronomer. And I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do that or something else. And then I sort of got caught up with friends who were going off to do medical science in second year. And I thought, actually, that sounds pretty cool. I might do that instead. And I never looked back. So I was really pleased that I went on to do medical science. And again, I was inspired by, you know, really enthusiastic, engaged teachers at the University of Sydney who, you know, made me think about immunology and pathology and disease and how I could contribute to solving some of those problems that we face. And then really, you've just outlined sort of what my path was from there, which was to go on to do research, which is something I'm really passionate about. And I suppose I had a really good opportunity a decade ago to sort of take on some more teaching responsibilities, which I'm also very passionate about. I think being able to inspire my students like I was inspired by my teachers 
is something that I'm really passionate about as well. Yeah, wow. It seems like your career has gone from strength to strength, but obviously this doesn't happen overnight. Were there some tough points in your career at all? Yeah, there were. I mean, look, uh, in the 90s and early noughties, when I was sort of finishing off my undergraduate and, and postgraduate training, the funding situation for research was really quite good. You know, as, as you mentioned, I was lucky to get a, a fellowship that took me to the United States to do my postdoctoral training. You know, those fellowships are now much, much harder to get. So early career researchers don't have the opportunities that I had when I was at that same point in my career. So I was at a time then, which was very fortunate, but I did hit the funding crisis in the middle of my career, which was sort of, you know, around the 2010 sort of level where funding success rates really started to drop off quite substantially. And it was quite a challenge to get funding and to keep research programs going. And certainly I wasn't unique in being caught up in those problems. And we lost a lot of good people from science in those times. And right now we're sort of at a point where having lost a lot of those mid-career researchers, we have a bit of a deficit when it comes to people who are still in STEM and still doing research. Mm. So the funding issue seems to be a recurring issue. Can you tell me how you got through it yourself? Yeah, um, look, it's, it's really challenging. And, and I think it's about diversifying your funding streams. It's about putting yourself out there and engaging with philanthropists, looking for other opportunities to fund your research. There are lots of not-for-profit organisations that will help support young researchers in particular, but also those who've got really creative ideas about tackling problems. So for me, that was reaching out to organisations like MS Research Australia and diversifying the types of research that you do. So it's difficult to change your research trajectory, but sometimes you need to think about what research can I do that's going to have an impact and where is that money going to come from? So for me, I could see that my research was going to have an impact on autoimmune diseases and particularly multiple sclerosis. And so I targeted funding agencies that would allow me to continue that research that I was doing. So it's about diversifying. It's about putting yourself out there. It's about marketing your own research and becoming visible in that marketplace. By doing so, then you would basically open yourself up to a whole heap of new experiences. Is that right? You do, yeah. New experiences in terms of communities of, of researchers, of communities of donors. You know, you start finding that rather than just writing annual reports to the government for the MHNMRC grants that you might have, you actually find yourself going on a harbour cruise for the Cancer Council and giving a talk or ending up at a China Doll restaurant alongside celebrities trying to raise money for MS research and giving talks at those community fundraising events. And that sort of activity is something that researchers need to do more and more of in order to not just to promote their research, but actually to gain support from those funding bodies and those individuals who are likely to recognise you and recognise the work you're doing and support you. Yeah, so what you're suggesting is science is not all about science, it's about marketing as well and networking. It is, it is. And it, it's, it's actually quite hard work, you know, going to conferences, networking with your peers, networking with companies and industry, um, networking with lay people who really want to know about your research and getting your research out there and not just in traditional formats of journal articles, but actually getting out in front of the public and telling them about your research. And that's what it's all about. And, and it is, it's much harder work, but it can also be rewarding. Mm. Well, can we go into that though? Because, you know, obviously scientists are not traditionally the marketer types. That's the reason why they get into science, right? They've, they've got a different personality type. So it's a little bit more difficult. And then on top of that, 
for someone, for instance, who is a primary caregiver, to be able to spend all the time and effort needed to be able to network correctly with everybody who you need to network is actually quite difficult to be able to put that time in. So can I ask then how were you able to do that and also whilst having a, a family at the same time? Yeah, look, I, Catherine, I, I was very fortunate that, I mean, I have a, a traditional nuclear family of of a stay-at-home mum, three kids. So it's been a lot easier for me and I recognise how much easier it has been for me than it would be for many other people. And so I'm under no pretense at how lucky I've been in that regard. But it also comes down to the way in which, you know, we traditionally conduct our research and promote our research. You know, you go to conferences or you go to, let's, let's just talk about, you know, having a meeting at work. You know, a meeting at work that is organised for five o'clock in the afternoon over drinks is inappropriate in this day and age because people have to come pick up the kids or they might be working from home or you go to a conference and there's no daycare facilities for people who've got kids who need to bring them along or they're held in locations where people can't easily access them or at times when they can't, their kids are at school and it's not during school holidays. So all of these things, all of these decisions are being made without thinking about the participants and who need to be able to engage in those activities and also balance competing activities like picking kids up from school, like, like staying at home with sick kids. And for me, I've been very fortunate that our family unit has been able to accommodate those competing interests. Yeah, but it sounds to me like you're quite aware of the fact that this is an unusual position in these kind of day and age where there's somebody at home all the time taking care of the kids. So yeah. let's talk about children then. Let's move into that. There's got to be a point, you've, you said you've got three children, there's got to be a point in your career when you're pushing to kind of move forward and then you have children. Can you tell me what was the impact on you personally having your first child and subsequent children and then how did that impact on your career? Yeah, I was very conscious that I wanted to spend more time at home. I also grew up in a, in a very nuclear family where the, my dad went to work and worked you know, from 7 o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock in the night and we very rarely saw him maybe we saw him sometimes on weekends I didn't want to do that I know looking at him now how much he regrets that and I, I didn't want to do that I wanted to coach the soccer team I wanted to attend all of the afternoon activities I, I wanted to take them to this I wanted to drop them off at school I wanted to pick them up from school and I was fortunate I suppose in, in my job that I had some flexibility to be able to do that not everyone does and I think if we can sort of free people up to be able to do that, not just mums, but actually dads, dads want to be involved in this too. We don't want to be missing out on the early stages of our family's lives. We don't want to end up in a situation where we've suddenly got grandkids and we don't know who our own children are. That's not what we want. And I think there are things that we can do to sort of, you know, accommodate that. Okay. What are the things that we can do, particularly for men who want to spend more time with their families? Yeah, I, I think that flexibility in the workplace can go both ways. I think it can be good for families to have fathers home more often, to have balance in the influence that both parents can have on children's upbringing. It's important, particularly for boys, to see their fathers actually at home, hanging out the washing, doing the cooking, doing the school pickup, because as they grow up, they'll be expecting to do the same rather than just be going off to work and never seeing their own kids. So I think leading by example is what we need to be trying to do. 
How can the workplace accommodate that? Well, I think the last sort of three months of the lockdown due to COVID-19 has shown us that, yes, we can be still productive in STEM. There are things that we can do from home that doesn't require us to spend, you know, an hour and a half in the car or on the train getting to and from work and then sitting in an office when we could actually be just at home doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And there'll be times when, particularly for teaching, where an education is inherently a social activity, we're actually coming together face-to-face is required. But we're already starting to rethink the way in which we can do teaching and research to accommodate those competing needs. Mm. So what you're suggesting is that COVID-19 for men in particular has been quite advantageous in it being able to give them the opportunity to work from home and to be around more. Yeah, not only that, Catherine, it actually is, is opening many eyes as to the, the volume of work that women do in the house and that actually, you know, men need to pick up the slack, right? They, they really, they, they, yeah, well, they're off at work, you know, blissfully unaware of, of how much hard work is going on at home. And actually, they're at home now seeing it going, oh, wow, actually, this is, this is something that I should be, you know, probably helping out here with. Yeah doesn't get clean by itself, does it? That's <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's good to hear. It's good to hear, Scott. So can we just move slightly in a different direction then? In terms of your career, so I've talked about a few hard parts in terms of, you know, funding has been difficult. Can we kind of go into a personnel thing? Have there been times where you felt biased against, in particular biased against because of your gender at all. And the reason I'm asking this is that because I'm well aware that whilst gender bias happens, you know, it does happen to women and everyone's aware that this happens, I'm, I would really like to tell the story that it does happen with men as well. So I'm wondering if you've got any examples of that happening to you. Yeah. Uh, look, Catherine, yeah, I've been... Um... I've been the victim of bullying in the workplace from senior females. It's the kind of thing that I don't tend to talk about very often. And I think it's the kind of thing that most men, even if they have experienced it, are likely to sweep under the carpet and sort of ignore. It's not the thing that you would normally complain about, right? You know, privileged white males, why would you have anything to complain about? But it does happen. And it actually probably happens more than most people might realize that just because you're male, you are often the target of some uh, aggression maybe of senior females because you're trying to get ahead and because you're male. It does sound like I'm whinging and, and I'm not. It's, it's really, it's, it's very difficult to sort of talk about this because I really have nothing to complain about. And yet this does happen in the workplace. And I think we need to all be conscious of, well, you know, conscious of the subconscious really of this does happen that both men and women need to treat each other more equally. Mm. Can I go into how that bullying happened? What kind of form it was? Yeah, look, I, I think it was just a public forum um, as well as private forums, putting me down and, and putting down the people who work with me because they work with me or uh, because I supervise them. And, you know, it, it, it can be insidious. It can be um, subversive. It can really be upsetting in, in many ways too. Um, and it, it's something that you you know you 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 learn to deal with but it can be tough Mm. and do you think you were a target because of yourself or maybe it was because you represented something 
perhaps these females have some kind of being their bonnet about men being able to progress faster. Perhaps she was resentful or jealous about the fact that you wanted to move ahead. Why do you think she was having a go at you in particular? Yeah, look, I, I don't know, Catherine. I don't think that I was personally targeted. I don't think it was because of who I was. I think it was more because of what I represented. A group of privileged white males who probably need to be shown that the quality can go both ways. But I think, look, I don't think that's the right approach. You know, the old saying is you catch more bees with honey, right? So, you know, you, you, you've got to, got to bring males along with you. Males at the moment are in a position of being able to affect change. Mm. Males of my generation in particular, those who are on, on the cusp of leadership positions of their own, working alongside women who are also in those leadership positions, together we can actually affect change. It's going to be very, very hard to affect change with some of the current generation of leaders who have very traditional views on the roles of women, and not just women, but those other minorities as well in the workplace. Mm. Um, we all need to actually get in the same room together and say, how can we actually make sure that we are consciously making decisions that are going to address these issues? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move into that then. You know, as a leader of a group, what are you doing to make sure that there's equal opportunities for both the males and females in your group? And not only that, during my research, I found that it's not necessarily the PhD students or the initial postdocs are where the issue is. It's the mid-career researchers that are dropping out. I mean, how are you, what are you doing specifically to support those mid-career researchers from dropping out? Well, look, I'm very proud of the department that I lead at the University of Sydney, the Applied Medical Science Discipline. As the head of that discipline, I was charged with building that discipline up and appointing new academics to that discipline. And we have over 50% female representation of academics in that discipline and all of those are in the mid-career level so that's one thing that, that I consciously was aware of that we needed to have equity in those academic positions so giving mid-career female researchers opportunities in academia is something that I was able to contribute and very proud of. The vast majority of the students that come through my lab are female I have a, an extremely talented young postdoc at the moment who's three years out of her PhD. Uh, one of the things that I try to do is if I've given an invitation to give a presentation somewhere, for example, I will say, actually, why don't you ask Annalise to see if she'd like to give this talk instead? When I'm organising conferences as the president of the Molecular and Experimental Pathology Society of Australasia, I'll insist on making sure that not only do we have half the speakers being female, but actually making sure that early and mid-career researchers are well represented and making sure that, that we target not just females, but also people from countries that aren't normally represented, you know, from Southeast Asia in particular, places like India, for, as an example of where we sort of try and target up-and-coming young female researchers in those countries, giving them opportunities to present as an invited speaker to an international meeting can have such a, a big effect on the success of their own careers. So look, there's some of the things that I'm doing personally to sort of help um, in that regard and encouraging my female students to seek out opportunities that present themselves to them. Because there are lots of opportunities out there for early career researchers. As you said, Kath, the mid-career research um, void is where we have to really try and make sure we don't lose people. But at the early career stage, there are usually lots of opportunities, small grants, fellowships that people can apply for. And, and teaching my students to be proactive in that regard as opposed to just sort of waiting for things to come by their desk. 
Mm. So you're taking an active approach in basically just encouraging everybody. I mean, it doesn't sound to me like you would be biased towards females in this approach. I think it's more encouraging everybody to take as many opportunities as they possibly can. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, but it's also about giving mid-career female researchers opportunities. If a position on a committee becomes available that can help promote their career or help them get a promotion, for example, it's about putting their names forward. It's about thinking of them first to see how can I make sure that these people are given the opportunities that they might have otherwise been overlooked for. Also being very mindful that we cannot, we cannot give all of those committee work jobs to females, which is often what tends to happen, and the males go off into the labs and to do all the research. That's something we need to be very conscious of. We can't be relying on old sort of mentalities. We need to be doing this consciously. So we basically need to get a lot of the secretarial or administration that would normally be falling to some female, be able to open that up to the young men who are early career researchers as well, for instance. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. And so in terms of networking events, I mean, obviously you're pushing forward your students and your postdocs for speaking events and things like that. How are you kind of helping them with networking events as well? You know, networking is often quite a difficult thing. It's a necessary thing, but it's often quite difficult for scientists. I mean, it's more about learning how to do that properly and also being encouraged to be part of the network as well. So how do you as a leader do this with your team? Yeah, the most important thing you can do is attend the conferences with your students and maybe not literally hold their hand, but metaphorically hold their hand as as you go around the room because you'll know people in that room that they won't and you'll be able to introduce them. You'll say, hey, big scientists over here, let's go and chat to them. Let's go and introduce you to them. Let's, Let's have a chat about your research. And so it's actually taking active steps to sort of promote your students in those ways. And and even if it's them just sort of being part of a group at a conference, or it could be we're off for dinner, um, you know, after the last talk at this conference, making sure that your students come along with you, making sure you invite them to come along with you. Now, a lot of people do this. This is not something that's unique to what I do, but it's very important that we stop to think about how we can ensure that our, our young scientists have opportunity to learn how to engage and network in these environments. Mm. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of work encouraging your young scientists to be moving forward. What about opportunities to move forward into leadership positions then in terms of being able to give those mid-career researchers a push forward? In my experience, talking to a lot of scientists, I found that most people have to make the conscious decision or they get to a stage where they actually need to make a conscious decision to push forward. And that is both men and women. And it sounds to me like you've reached a lot of those stages of the pivotal moments where you need to push to go to the next stage of your career. And also this was supported by the fact that you've got a great home life, you know, you're able to just concentrate on your career. How would you be able to support mid-career researchers to go forward, particularly if they need extra support? Yeah, there's a couple of ways that I do it. So one of the things that I did with my mid-career academics was to line them up with senior female academics in the university because they they were new to academia. They were, before they uh, were employed by the university, they were full-time researchers and it was clear to me that in order for them to take on some of these leadership roles, they needed to have some senior female mentors who were already in academia and succeeding in academia. So one of the things I did was to line up individuals with people that I knew 
and people that I respected and people that, that I had found inspiring and to sort of say, hey, would you mind, you know, maybe having a chat to this person and giving them some guidance on how they can seize opportunities that come their way. And that's the other thing that I always encourage my students to do is to seek out opportunities and to seize them when they come your way, when they're presented and, and to have good mentors, mentors that you respect. But remember, you can have people who you learn from in lots of different ways. So you can learn not only from good mentors about how to do some things, but you can learn from others about how not to do some things. Mm-hmm. When you see bad things happen, you learn that that's not the way, that's not the approach. And certainly I learned you know, how not to behave from, you know, having experienced bullying in the workplace. And so uh, as a consequence, my approach is one of a supportive approach, one of, of encouragement, you know, and it could just be a very simple thing of sending a text or an email to one of the members of your staff during a troubled time and just say, Hey, look, I'm really glad that you're in the team. I'm really glad that you're working with us and that, uh, you know, you're doing really great work. Keep it up. And it can just be a couple of lines, but it can make such a difference to someone's approach to their work and to feel valued because we all want to feel valued, right? Absolutely. Um, it sounds like you're doing such great work at University of Sydney and they're very lucky to have you. I'm going to kind of wrap it up at the moment, but before we finish, I mean, you've told us a whole heap of different approaches that you're taking in terms of addressing the equity issues within the university or within your group. Is there any other tips or tricks that you can suggest that we could adopt in order to be able to support these women mid-career to stop them dropping out from science? Because this is where the issue is at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, Catherine, I think it's going to come down to funding. And if we're going to be serious about ensuring that we don't lose mid-career female scientists from STEM, then we need to address the funding issue. So, you know, there's a couple of practical things that we could do, right? So, when we all apply for fellowships or grants, if you have a career disruption, and in most cases that career disruption is usually because of having children, people will, applicants will put a lot of time and effort into addressing their career disruption and outlining how their career has been disrupted. But then there's no onus on the reviewers of those applications to actually document how they have taken into account career disruption in the assessment of that application. So, and I think that is beholden upon the reviewers of those applications and the panels that review these applications to say, this is how we have taken into account your career disruption. Because at the moment, it's just dismissed. And, you know, you you can't just dismiss career disruption. We can't ignore biology. If we want to encourage women to have children, then we need to support them in that. The government has spent a lot of money training these scientists. And the vast majority of female scientists are brilliant. They bring different ideas. They bring different approaches that complement the approaches and ideas that are already there. And if we lose that, then we've lost more than just people. We've lost ideas and creativity and approaches. So we don't want to spend you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars training these brilliant scientists only to have them fall through the cracks when they reach their mid-career. So what we should be doing is say, well, we're going to have equity fellowships and grants targeted directly to those individuals. So we could say things like, okay, well, look, if you go off and have kids uh, and we want you to go off and have kids, but when you come back, we're going to support you. We're going to support you in lots of different ways. First of all, we're going to give you a five-year fellowship, which will cover your salary and the salary of your postdoc and consumables to go with it. In five years, you should be able to demonstrate what impact you've had from that fellowship and reserve them for people who've had career disruptions. 
I mean, that, they're just, just simple things that we can do that will address that issue straight away. Yeah, funding is a big issue in science at the moment, and I can see it only getting a bit harder at the moment given the current situation. But uh, yeah. that is a very valid point in that if supported with adequate funding, females wouldn't drop out as much as they, no. as they are at the moment. Yeah. Funding is the issue, Catherine. It, it's, it's the issue. And, and if we fix that, I think we could fix a lot of the other problems. Mm. I agree. On that note, Scott, can I say thank you for joining us? I really appreciate your candidness and your honesty today. It's really lovely and refreshing to hear your point of view. And I love what you're doing at University of Sydney. Keep it up. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. Great. See you, Catherine. Bye.